Good morning to everyone who is uh, online today as well, maybe traveling for the holidays. Um, I'm glad I did that song uh, just before I get into this. Uh, I think we don't realize how blessed we are to live in this country sometimes, um, although maybe sometimes, you know, Christians are kind of hated in this country, but, you know, we're not persecuted like uh, Christians around the world are. Um, so I think it is nice to take a moment to just thank God about the blessing that it is to, to live in this free country where we can come here every single Sunday and we can worship like this. Um, and it's just truly a blessing for us. Um, so today I want to focus on two primary questions. Our first question is, is are we giving our best to God? Uh, this seems like a pretty obvious question. Are we, are we truly giving him our best? Or are, we, are we serving him the way that he deserves to be served? Are we, eh, maybe we're giving him our second, our third, tenth, last, <laughs> just our leftovers whenever we have time for him. The next question that we're going to uh, unpack a little today is, are we truly following Christ? Uh, now, this one seems a little bit trickier because uh, a lot of the Bible talks about, you know, believing and having faith, and that's our way to our salvation, and all that is definitely true. But Jesus also asks us to follow him, to be his followers. Um, and we'll get into that word following as, as we go along today. But ultimately, what uh, what's going to happen is, is those questions really just morph, morph into one question. Because we can't be his follower without giving him our best. So it's, it's really, although it's two different questions, it's the same exact question. So I want to start off today with Luke 14, 25 through 27. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Yes, we're going to start off with that today. Yeah, I got a, I got a doozy for us, right? Um, so if you're, if you're maybe a little bit newer in your faith, uh, a little bit newer to reading the Bible, uh, you might look at that and be like, whoa, uh, Really, Jesus? You're telling me to hate all these people that's uh, close to me? Um, but the thing is here is Jesus isn't telling us to hate these people like we hate, uh, like heinous crimes, like we uh, child sex trafficking or something like that. That's not, that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is, is that we must be ready to suffer the loss of all things for Christ and the gospel. So you can't read 26 without reading the context of 27, because that's how you get this word, that's how you get the word hate out of that. Jesus' audience was well aware of what it meant to carry one's own cross. When the Romans led their criminals to the execution site, those criminals had to carry their cross to the place that they would die. That showed submission to Rome. And it warned others that they had better submit too. And that's what Jesus is doing in this verse right here. He's encouraging those that are superficial in their faith to either dig a little bit deeper, to truly follow him, or to turn back. Because there is no in-between. There's no room for anything else. He's not telling us to actually hate these people. He's telling us that he needs to be loved more. He needs to be our top priority in our life. Jesus doesn't just want to be first place in our lives. 
He wants to be the only place in our lives. There shouldn't be a second place. If we spend so much time giving our attention to other people and our things and ourselves, then we have no time for Jesus because we focus all that energy elsewhere. So are we giving our best to him? Uh, Nikki read that kind of maybe bizarre uh, call to worship this morning from Malachi. Maybe, maybe some people thought it was bizarre. I thought it was bizarre the first time I read it. So a uh, funny story is I had heard a podcast earlier in the day, and they were talking about uh, like Micah 6-8 verse, you know, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. And I was like, you know, I've, I've never read the whole book of Micah, so like maybe I should sit down and just read this book. So, uh, you know, I opened my Bible that night, and I started reading, and I'm reading about all these sacrifices, and I'm like, is this really what Micah's about? No, it's not what Micah's about. Uh, that was Malachi that I had accidentally opened. And I'm reading it like, scratching my head like, okay, well, I guess I'll just continue reading here. And uh, funny how God works sometimes because uh, that verse uh, really jarred me a little bit and actually formed the basis of what I'm here to talk about today. Uh, so if we go back then to Malachi 1, I'll read 8 and 9 again just to remind us. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? So there's two things that are happening here that I want to break down. The people had stopped giving their best to God. They, instead of giving their acceptable animals, their, uh, their, their first males, their strong males, um, they were offering their weak and their sick and their runts. And now they did this, of course, because at this time, Jesus hadn't come yet to atone for their sins. So this is still Old Testament times where they were sacrificing animals on their behalf, on behalf of their sins. So they weren't even giving their second animal, right? They were literally giving the worst thing in their flock to be atoned for their sins. The second thing is that the priests were actually the ones who would do, uh, would do the animal sacrifices on behalf of them. And instead of them turning these down, they were taking the animals. So they weren't worshiping God to the standards that God deserved to be worshiped at. So the people had got tired of giving God their best. The people didn't want to give up their best animals in the flock because they had the most to gain from that. Their strong animals, the animals that they wanted to keep reproducing in the flock to have better and better animals. They wanted to get rid of those weak animals because they had the, loose, the, the, the least to lose uh, from those animals, those weak animals, the animals that were already on their deathbed. And the priests had become lazy in their faith. The priests found that worshiping God became burdensome. They no longer cared about the correct forms of worship. They were just look, making, looking to make their lives convenient. And so I think there's two major takeaways here. Grab a quick sip of water. The priests were supposed to be intermediaries between God and the people. So they did the sacrifices on behalf of the people. 
So the priests were responsible for reflecting God's attitudes and character. By them accepting the imperfect sacrifices, they were leading the people to believe that God accepted those sacrifices as well. And you can clearly tell as you read along in Malachi that God was not happy about that at all. He mentioned, would your governor be pleased by this? Well, if we only paid half of our taxes, would, would the government be very pleased with us? I don't think so. I think we'd end up in jail. In our lives, we as Christians, we are the priests to the world. We reflect God's attitude and characters to our friends, to our family, to our coworkers. Do they see us separate from the world? Do they see us having joy, being loving? Do they see us making God our top priority? Or are we these priests? Do we give God a bad name? Do we say we're one thing? Do we pretend like we're come in on Sunday morning, we pretend like we're a part of the world, but then when we go back out, out of these doors, we fit right in? Are we those priests? The other major takeaway here is what we give God reflects our true attitude towards him. The people weren't sacrificing their best animals. Do we do that? Do we give God our leftover time, money, energy, whatever we have left for him? Uh, two little stories here. Uh, last fall, Bree and I started watching uh, the show. Maybe you've seen it. It's called Seal Team. It's a pretty cool show. It's about Navy SEALs. They go kick some enemy butt. Um, and we got really hooked on the show. Um, we would basically come home from work, and we'd turn the show. We'd make some dinner, turn the show on, and we'd, we'd watch it until it was time to go to bed. And I don't think that I picked up my Bible once during the uh, five seasons worth of binging that we did um, because it was, it was just so obsessive, and it was just like, I got to watch the next one. I got to watch the next one. I got to watch the next one. Was I giving God my best during that time? Absolutely not. I don't, um, I don't even think I was giving God my runt animal at the time. I think I was just, uh, I think I just ignored who God was because I wanted to watch more of the show. And I wasted a lot of time, time that I could have spent uh, reading, learning more about God, volunteering somewhere, just doing something productive instead of just mindlessly watching TV. Another little story is, is uh, I won this safety award at work like a, like a year ago or so. And uh, I had just won it, and we actually had a small group going on at the time, Ryan, Jordan. Um, we, were, we were over at the Edder household that night. And uh, funny story, Rich, I don't even know if you remember this, but Rich Edder really put me in my place that day because I kind of was bragging about it. Hey, I won this money. Look at all this cool stuff I can buy now. And what's the first question that comes out of his mouth? Well, how can you honor God with that money, Mike? Well, I don't know, Rich, I hadn't thought about it. I was only thinking about myself. But that's true. And I mentioned that story because Rich was what those priests in the book of Malachi should have been. When those people brought those animals to them, they should have said no. This is not, you, do you really think that the God of the universe, he deserves this? No, he deserves more than that. And so Rich really uh, showed God's true characters and attitudes, and, and I'll, I'll never forget it. Something as simple as that, I'll never forget it. So here's the thing. 
If we're giving God our leftovers, then what does it say about our relationship with him? It must not be too good, uh, because he uses some really harsh language there in 14. He says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. My name will be feared among the nations. So you have what it takes to give God your best, and you don't. You give him your last. Cursed be me for having that free time. Instead of using it for his glory, I wasted it watching TV. Cursed be me for having the blessing of this nice amount of money that comes out of nowhere that I can give back to his kingdom a little, and he's not even on my mind. This is harsh language that he's using. However, it's very similar to the language that Jesus uses in that Luke 14 verse. Because it's really easy to give God our last, to think about him last and think about ourselves first. But it's very difficult to submit our lives to him. But the reward is so much better. So if we're not giving our best to God, maybe we have to ask ourselves, why not? In his book titled Not a Fan, uh, Kyle Eidelman makes this case that we have to have a DTR talk with Jesus. Uh, Eidelman is a Southeast Christian Church pastor in Louisville, Kentucky. He, uh, I actually really recommend this book called Not a Fan. It's, uh, it's, a really, it's really simply written. Sometimes you read books and you read a paragraph and you're just like, I don't know what that even said. And then you read it again and you read it again and you're like, all right, I give up. It's a really simple book where he talks about the relationship that you have with Jesus, and it's a very convicting book, and so I'm going to talk about it a little bit here this morning. So he says we have to have this DTR talk with Jesus, and that is define the relationship. Without spoiling the whole book, Eidelman makes the case for us to consider as to whether we are followers of Christ or whether we are merely fans of Christ. He defines fan by an enthusiastic admirer. And he paints the picture of what I'm going to change a little bit, because this is the way I see it in his book, uh, of a typical Steelers yinzer. Somebody who sits down on the couch every single Sunday to watch the game, maybe goes to the game, sitting on the sidelines, jersey on, maybe some black and gold face paint, terrible towel in the pocket. And he criticizes every single play that it's made out there. I could have caught that ball. I could have called a better play, right? Come on, we're all, we've all been there. I've been there. But the thing is, is they're in the bleachers. They're on the couch. They're not in the game. They're not forced to make that hard decision on fourth and one whether to go for it or punt the ball. They're not forced to catch that ball and take that big hit from this 250-pound muscle guy. And then after a few seasons of them losing, such as now, they lose interest in the game. Their enthusiasm goes up and down by how well that their team is playing for them. Eidelman says, and I think Jesus has a lot of fans these days, fans who cheer for him when things are going well, but who walk away when it's a difficult season. Fans who sit safely in the stands cheering, but they know nothing of the sacrifice and pain of the field. Fans of Jesus who know all about him, but they don't know him. Is this us? Are we giving Jesus our all, or are we merely believing in him? Because we like the idea of Jesus. We like the idea that Jesus saves us from our sin and grants us eternal life. 
but we have no desire to do anything for his kingdom, to give back to him. We can't give God our best if our relationship is defined by what can God do for you and not what can you do for God. Another quick note that he makes here is that he said fans who know all about him, but they don't know him. This is important because a lot of people, um, you know, Pastor Rich talks about a lot of like theologians who uh, know and they can tell you anything about Jesus, but they're not even actually believers themselves. They just know the facts about Jesus. They've never experienced him. Do we experience God? The way we experience him, uh, we can experience him through church service, uh, small groups, concerts. Uh, we take the kids to retreat. A lot of, a lot of the kids uh, really feel the presence of God when they're at those retreats. We experience him through people. Um, when, when my mom was passing away, we had two of her friends that came and uh, helped us during this time. Uh, Marianne and Joel, and if, if you're out there listening, shout out to you guys. Uh, they were almost like angels sent from above to come and help us during what was a terrible time. And you, you couldn't deny that God had his hand there working through these people. So we experience him that way. My wife, uh, she experiences God. She reads these uh, fictional books, um, fictional Christian books that are I think they're uh, historically based and whatnot too, but like she can't put these books down because she reads these books and she experiences God through these characters and then can apply them back to her life. And she does this every single day without missing a beat. And if she does miss a day, it's like it like it like ruins her day because now she she didn't have that experience with God that she really wanted to have. And in my eyes, that's that's definitely no fan. Somebody who's taking the time out of every day to do something like that. Uh, and that, that's going to bring me back to our gospel reading this morning, Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We've probably all seen this verse all over the place. Uh, you might have it hanging, um, hanging on your wall somewhere at home. It's very similar to the one that I used earlier in Luke 14. Jesus is saying, get down on the field with me and help me do my ministry. Follow after me. Doing the work, even if it gets hard, picking up your cross. But he uses a really demanding word here that's not used in Luke 14. And that word is daily. Jesus doesn't tell us to put our selfish desires and pick up our cross once in a while. He tells us to do it every day day. Not when we feel like it, not when we feel like it's convenient for us to do so. He tells us to do it every day. He wants us to wake up in the morning and ask ourselves, what can I do today to serve the Lord? Maybe that's something difficult. Maybe that's volunteering at a nonprofit. Maybe that's volunteering at a church event. We got VBS coming up in two weeks. Maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's as simple as waking up every day and taking 10 minutes before you do anything else to pray to God, to have a devotional to God, read a short paragraph. 
start your day with God so that when the chaos of the world revolves around you as the day goes on, you had that moment with him now that you can look back on and say, okay, God's, God's got this day no matter how chaotic it gets. And if we're not willing to submit to Jesus and go into every day ready to serve the Lord over ourselves, maybe we are more of a fan than we thought we were. So another little example I have is that um, if you know me, you know I love the outdoors. Uh, I love fishing, hunting. That's just one of my big passions. And I have a great group of friends that I do that with. Um, and it's, it's hard to do that stuff on the weekends or on the weekdays because, you know, you're at work and whatnot. So you're, you're almost forced to do stuff on the weekends sometimes. And a few years ago, I would say I was never, never going to turn down a fishing trip, right? So Sunday morning, somebody would say, hey, let's go, let's go fishing. And it's like, yeah, sure. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll get to church next week. But now, when somebody asks me that, I know that I got to pick up my cross and follow Jesus to church, not pick up my fishing pole and follow my friends to the stream. Because it's time to worship him. And see, God gave me the talents that I have to work back in that booth with all of our wonderful AV team so that we can make the service run smoothly and we can get it out to the public on YouTube and Facebook. That's, that's Matthew's parable of the talents, right? God, God gave all those people their talents, and then the one guy buried his to save it for later. And God was furious with him. You're supposed to use your talents for his ministry. Now, before you give me too much credit here, I got to say that I, I grumble sometimes. I do grumble. Um, and Paul tells us not to grumble. He says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. But I do grumble, especially when somebody sends me a picture of a huge fish and then I could have been there and I'm like, oh, man, I can't believe I'm missing this. <laughs> so sometimes I feel like maybe I'm not carrying my cross quite as I am dragging it along behind me. I'm following him, but I'm following him. I'm like, can we just like take a break for a second here? Because see, the thing is, is carrying your cross will cost you something. And if it doesn't, maybe you're not actually carrying your cross. It might cost you a relationship with friends. People who don't, I mentioned, you know, people don't like Christians sometimes, people who don't approve of your lifestyle. It's hard to pick up your cross when you have people around you that love you that are telling you to put it down. You might have to lose a job. Maybe that job's a little icky. Maybe you don't like what they believe. It'd be more beneficial for you to just keep doing the job, just keep making money for your family. Or maybe it's something as simple as you got to miss one fishing trip because it's time to go worship the Lord. We all have things that we want to do. And I think God uh, enjoys us enjoying the wonders that he created, right? I don't think that he doesn't want us to enjoy our time here on earth. But if that thing that you like to do so much is forcing you to put your cross down, and we can't even see Jesus up ahead of us anymore because we veered off the path so much, maybe it's time to reevaluate uh, our lives a little. Take another sip of water here, sorry. In his book, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, 
He says this, There is within the human heart a tough and fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. The pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print, but their constant and universal use is significant. They are verbal symptoms of our deep disease. The roots of our hearts have grown into things, and we dare not pull one rootlet lest we die. Things have become necessary to us, a development never originally intended. God's gifts now take the place of God. And this is why it's so easy to fall into the fan trap, to fall into giving God our second, our last, instead of our first and our only. Because we enjoy God's gifts so much that we forget that it was God who gave them to us in the very beginning. And when we forget that, it's very easy to start putting our own desires above his, over picking up our crosses and following him. The truth is that it's difficult to push our desires aside. But it comes by practicing. We have to practice saying no to our desires and putting serving the Lord above all else. You've heard me mention a lot of uh, little moments today. A bonus at work, watching TV, going fishing. These are not significant events. They're small. They're minor. But that's the point, and that's why I mentioned them. Because if we can't put God first in these small events in our life, how on earth are we supposed to follow him and give him our all during life's most challenging events? If we can't give God a portion of our bonus before spending it on earthly things, if we can't turn off the TV and go read our Bibles or go volunteer, if we can't go to church rather than missing a fishing trip, how can we mount our crosses on our shoulders, give God our first and only, and follow after him when we lose a job? And we can't pay any of our bills. When someone close to us dies and it feels like our whole world is falling apart. When we're battling a disease that seems impossible to overcome. How then can we serve the Lord in those moments if we couldn't even serve him during life's easiest? And the answer is we won't. Because we'll have already left the stadium. We were down three touchdowns with two minutes left and we went home. It wasn't worth our energy anymore because the comeback was nearly impossible. We were enthusiastic admirers whose enthusiasm went down because it seemed like Christ wasn't helping us anymore. Arguably, I don't think there's a better example uh, in the Bible of any man being a stronger follower and giving his absolute uh, best to God in what seemed like was going to be the worst moment of his life uh, than Abraham in the book of Genesis. I think most of us here would probably know the, the story of Abraham. It's, it's mentioned a lot here in this church because it is such a uh, powerful story uh, and a very complex story, so I'm only going to focus on one piece of it. I'm not going to go into the whole thing, just as it relates to this topic. Um, so briefly, we know that uh, Abraham and Sarah were uh, very old, and they were childless. But God had promised Abraham to fulfill the covenants that he was going to have a son. Of course, Abraham didn't believe him because of how old he was, and Sarah basically had laughed him off. But that's exactly what happened. They did have a child, and his name is Isaac. Now, we don't know much of the relationship between Abraham and Isaac, um, so I'm going to turn back to 
that book, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, he does a great job of explaining their relationship and what it, uh, and what it would have been like for Abraham. He says, Abraham was old when Isaac was born, old enough to have been his grandfather, and the child became at once the delight and idol of his heart. From the moment he first stooped to take the tiny form awkwardly in his arms, he was an eager love slave of his son. God went out of his way to comment on the strength of this affection, and it's not hard to understand. The baby represented everything sacred to the father's heart. The promises of God, the covenants, the hopes of the years to come, and the long messianic dream. As he watched him grow from babyhood to young manhood, the heart of the old man was knit closer and closer to the life of his son. Till at last the relationship bordered upon the perilous. It was then that God stepped in to save both father and son from the consequences of an uncleansed love. So he'd been waiting his whole life to the point where he never thought he was going to have a son. And when he finally did, his son took the place of God. God's gifts now take the place of God. Abraham stopped giving his first and only to God and started giving that to his son. But God was going to set him straight. God wanted Abraham to commit to him and to him alone. And so he asked us for that too. In Genesis 22, 2, he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So he finally has... He finally has his son. The covenants are being fulfilled. And now he has to kill him? I imagine this had to have been a long, agonizing night for Abraham. Because tomorrow in the morning was going to be the worst day of his life as to whether, because he needed to make a decision, as to whether he was going to fulfill his own desires and his family's desires and say, God, you know what? You're not the boss of me. I'm not doing this. And quite frankly, you're a little crazy right now. This is, I'm not, I'm not killing my only son. Would have been really easy for Abraham to do that. But I think Abraham knew better. I think God asking him this jarred something in his head. Maybe he realized that he was making an idol out of his son. And he knew that he needed to slay the idol. And he does just that. He takes his son up into the mountains. And when he's just about to sacrifice his son, God stops him. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. This was never about Abraham slaying Isaac. This was the test of a lifetime. This was God telling Abraham, it's time to slay your idol. It's time to hate everyone around you. It's time to pick up your cross, and it's time to follow me. Or turn back. Leave the game because the challenge is too hard. This was Abraham's choice. Was he going to give God his first and his best, his literal first and best? Or was he going to be a true follower of God? And he did just that. He slayed his idols and put God above all else. And God gives us this choice as well. Maybe not so dramatically as sacrificing our firstborn, 
but we do have this choice. Tozer concludes that chapter by saying this, so we will be brought one by one to the testing place, and we may never know when we are there. At that testing place, there will be no dozen possible choices for us, just one and an alternative. But our whole future will be conditioned by the choice we make. So as we go through those small events in life, what choices are we making? Because if we aren't conditioning ourselves in those small everyday choices, the choices that don't seem significant, then we don't stand a chance to choose God when we're at that testing place, that extremely difficult life-changing event for us. Are we going to stay in the stands and cheer Jesus on from afar? Are we going to get down on the field and do the work, do his work, his ministry? We're going to keep giving God our leftovers and the things that least affect us? Are we going to give him our whole day? We're going to wake up in the morning and give him our whole day until we close our eyes at night. My last sermon, I ended on a psalm, and I I want to do that again today for you. Um, And I want this... I want this psalm to be a challenge to all of us as we walk out those doors. This is Psalm 63, 1 through 5. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. This should be us. This psalm is giving God our best. Being satisfied with God and God alone, not with our own desires. Being satisfied with what he has to offer us. with his steadfast love for us. Because he deserves it so much, not just because of the wonderful lives that he's given us here, but because of the sacrifices that his son made on the cross for us that grants us salvation and eternal life with him. And for that, we should never stop seeking God. We should never stop praising God. We should never stop giving him our absolute best for even one second of our lives.